on this episode of the Vincast, I chat with Nick James Martin, winemaker based in Margaret River, behind the brand Wines of Merit. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And um, yeah, like I said uh, on the most recent episode, it's great to have the show back. Um, being in, in lockdown as we are uh, in Melbourne at stage four, it's pretty uh, pretty serious. But um, it is meaning that I have, uh, I'm at home, I have the ability to um, spend a bit more time on the podcast and record via Zoom, obviously. Uh, which means practicing social isolation, safe, safe distancing, that kind of thing. And, uh, and be- because um, particularly in Victoria, but sort of around the world, really, people are pretty much at home. Uh, no one's really doing much travel, I guess. So um, it means that people have a little bit more availability. It's a, a bit easier to uh, hook up, um, you know, find a, conven- a mutually convenient time to chat. So it is great to be able to finally have more episodes and uh, finally be able to catch up with people that I've been trying to uh, interview for a long, long time. So uh, please, uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, um, feel free to get in contact contact with me. I'd love to hear from you um, and recommend some people. Um, put your hand up even. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always keen for, for more people. Um, and you know, interesting stories, different personalities, that kind of thing. Different, different involvement in wine as well, um, because um, I think now's the time. Uh, people are probably a little bit starved for uh, content about wine. Um, they're not going out to bars and restaurants and chatting with sommeliers, uh, and a lot less likely to be going into wine shops. So, um, yeah, uh, I think it's a good opportunity to uh, to to be on the show and to uh, reach out to a new audience. But um, yeah. Very exciting, and um, I'm I'm really uh, thrilled to have uh, this week's guest, Nick James Martin, who um, I actually became familiar with uh, from my unfortunately now former employer, who started to distribute their wines. Uh, Nick James Martin, based in the Margaret River, started a brand in a 2017 vintage called Wines of Merit, um, but has a, a, a very varied. Um, background and with experience in the wine industry, so it was it was awesome to chat with him about his journey, um, find out about um, what makes him tick, but also why he has um, chosen to uh, make um, particular wines in Margaret River, um, very very prominent region here in Australia. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Please do stick around until the end to find out how you can get in contact with Nick and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Nick, thank you very much for joining me uh, all the way over in Margaret River for um, uh, for the Vincast. It's uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much, James. Nice to uh, speak to you again. Yes, uh, although we did speak um, reasonably recently uh, when you were a guest um, on uh, a co-hosting um, edition of uh, the Wine Show on a, a local radio program. The, um, on uh, inner FM here in Melbourne. Um, but you know, you were actually at the end of that two hour block and we very rapidly ran out of time. So I thought it was very apropos having you on as a proper guest so we can 
delve in uh, hopefully much more detail into your background, your journey, uh, which led you to making wine in the Mug River. Yeah, no, thanks, James. That was good fun on the radio. But yes, you you do feel sometimes like you never have quite enough time. <laughs> so um, uh, as you may be aware, I start every episode of the Vincast or every, you know, traditional episode of the Vincast by asking my guests if they can remember the first interaction with wine they had that set them on a path towards being a, a wine lover and uh, having a career in the wine industry. Uh, well, I guess my first interaction that I can remember was um, we had a we had a property that I grew up on in the Riverland um, and from the house down to the River Murray um, was down a hill and it was about 600 metres because that's where the school was. Um, and we had a long row of currants. Um, and I remember playing in that long, very long row of currants that as a kid you could hide, hide underneath the, the foliage. And um, my other memory was of uh, planting a block of uh, Musket Gordo Blanco in front of the house um, as a child. And the, so right in front of the house was, um, was, was a vineyard, basically. So that's my first recollections as a kid. And uh, were they profound? Um, interactions or did you uh, you know later on as an adult uh, I mean was was wine consumed in your family growing up um, you know did your parents drink wine yeah yeah we did I mean we had we had wineries all around us um, our closest next door neighbors the Miller Adelices were a, were a Greek immigrant family and um, now on their property is one of Australia's largest wineries. They crush uh, 95,000 tonnes um, and they were our next door neighbours. Um, so I grew up, grew up in the Riverland and uh, vineyards, winemaking and drinking wine was very much part of what, what went on all around us. Was there a bit of a focus on agriculture uh, at school, as far as studies, you, presumably, you know, you're going to school with a lot of kids from families who were farmers. Um, yeah, my little primary school, um, the, I mean, and I mean, it was very little. We had two classes and the most kids at that school was 30. So I had three in my year. Um, and we made wine at school. I remember making wine with a in a 44-gallon drum from um, the Freeman's Shiraz, uh, not the Freeman's in the hilltops, but um, I can't remember the, the parents' names, but Robbie was the schoolmate, and uh, so I remember going and picking Shiraz as kids in buckets, and then we brought that back and we made a Shiraz and a 44-gallon drum at school, primary school, that is. Well, that that seems appropriate. I mean, like it's not like they can drink it. It's like, oh, we're making this. We have no idea what it's for, or you know how it's enjoyed, or whatever. But um, you know, parents going, hey, let's let let's get the kids to make us some wine. Yeah, no, we did, and and I remember we used a, a baseball bat for breaking up the cap and plunging it, and. Um, and then all the kids helped draw or design the label. I remember we, it was pre-photocopiers and we had one of those, I think they were called lithograph machines with very smelly ink and you, it went on a drum and you, and you had a cranking handle and that turned out the copies and then they were stuck on the bottles afterwards. Um, kids designing wine labels, it's very natural wine, isn't it? Yeah, well, I imagine it probably was 
maybe a little bit funky since if it was made in a 44 gallon drum by primary school kids um who knows what it was like um so so were your were your parents involved in the wine industry or much were they would what, what was their um how did they earn a crust when you were growing up? um well we were farmers um so we had a couple of uh fruit blocks um so my I, the, the house i grew up in was was um built by my great-grandparents um forrester and prim merritt um in about 1910 and on the property was also their original little farmhouse as well so i um and through history they were mainly citrus growers but there were always vines on the property um and we had vines uh Gewürz Tremino, the great riverland grape um perfect for hot climates and deserts um we we grew that on on our other on our other properties so yeah there was always a history of growing grapes in the family um not so much commercial winemaking we we grew fruit i guess and sold it um whether it was oranges avocados or grapes um, but my dad made wine with a mate of his just as a hobby. Um, but we had friends and family friends and neighbours that had commercial wineries as well. Yeah, right. So there was a, a reasonable amount of osmosis going on. Did you at some point kind of think, oh, you know, I'd like to get, make this my career? Or, you know, did you become uh, interested in wine first? delayed for me as a as a career as a vocation but you know as a kid when I was 10 um, I sailed and my skipper was Paul Cassaboom and at the time he was studying enology um, at Roseworthy and his dad was a cooper and so I occasionally used to stay at their house when we were doing sailing tournaments and things like that and got to see his dad's cooperage and working as a cooper and Paul ended up running, um, being the operations manager for, for Hardy. So he he ran what was the Southern Hemisphere's biggest winery at various states for many years. So as a kid, you know, I had this bloke that was studying winemaking and had wineries all around. And yeah, maybe I should have progressed into it, but I didn't. I had a few um, stops and starts before I actually got into wine properly. And what sort of stops and starts were they? <laughs> um i i after we we moved down to adelaide and sold the riverland property um and so i went to school down in adelaide then had a had a crack at a business degree at uni which i hated um but at the time i was also working in in pubs and so it was through being a hospitality person that I ended up getting more and more into wine. So I was working in quite a smart pub in North Adelaide and had a really good restaurant next to it. And so it had a pretty strong wine culture in that venue. And so I started getting more and more into it, even though I was, I guess I was reasonably schooled in wine through my parents prior. Right. Okay. Uh, presumably, you know, earlier on, a lot of local wines you would have been exposed to how you know when did you start to get exposed to um examples from other regions states or countries yeah i guess there wasn't so much foreign wine that i can recall 
Um, but what what we certainly did drink a lot of um, was was local stuff in the Riverland, um, but also quite a lot of Pusey Vale and some of those table wines from around the time. Um, so there was quite a lot of Riesling, and this is during the 70s, I guess, where white wine was 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 king. Um, so lots of Riesling drinking, and up in the Riverland it was pretty hot, so there wasn't as much red wine drinking. But I know that Dad and his mates used to make a bit of Shiraz and Cabernet table wine, um, and so that was around as well. Yeah, right, okay. So uh, that's a business, a business um, degree. Uh, did you end up finishing that? Not even close. No, I, I didn't. I, 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 I struggled through well, almost two years of it, and yeah, it, it uh, just fell by the wayside. And I very much enjoyed working in a in a busy inner inner city um, pub in Adelaide, and that was great fun. And then through that, and I we had a really really encouraging owner, Tim Gregg, and. Tim and Andrew have just sold the Lion Hotel in Adelaide, actually, for, I don't know, $10-plus million. Um, so good on them that they're getting to retire finally. But they were quite encouraging of me getting more into wine and learning stuff. And, you know, we used to have Peter Gago as a regular. So that was pretty good. So he was always pretty open with 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 wine and leaving things behind and, and educating staff. And, and we had lots of really good... Was, was a bit of a headquarters for Orlando when Orlando was absolutely humming. And so we had this culture in the venue of having some pretty good wine people and then taking the time to actually educate us as staff. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, how long were you working in the, the in that kind of uh, gig for? Uh, about, I think it ended up being about five years. Um, okay. And then I, then I left working for them to work with Maggie Beer when she had a restaurant in Adelaide. And that was with Duncan Miller, who was the manager of Universal Wine Bar. So then even stronger wine culture. Um, and it was from working at Charlotte's Feed Store, the restaurant, that um, I got offered a job to go and work in London, running the International Wine Challenge. Um, and then wow, things, okay. really, things really took off after that. How did you end up getting offered that kind of job? Um, through Duncan Miller, actually. Duncan is an amazing guy and, you know, I have a lot of, lot of time for what the, the knowledge and the culture that Duncan would pass on. Um, so prior, Duncan had supplied a lot of staff to go over to the International Wine Challenge because Robert Joseph, who was one of the organisers and sort of creators of the wine competition, um, was great mates with Michael Hill-Smith, who was one of the part owners of Universal. And so they used to use the Universal staff or, or Duncan's recommendations to help staff the competition to run it um, over in London every year. So, um, yeah, so I was, I guess I was lucky to be, I guess, in the, in the mix and, and got offered the gig. Why is it that it seems that pubs and international wine competitions, they can't find any of their own stuff, so they have to import them from Australia? <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe as Australians, we, we, we have an inbuilt, and especially in the better hospitality places, that we have an inbuilt capacity for, one, wanting to learn, 
maybe a good background knowledge um, and also capacity to organise. And, you know, it was a pretty big gig. It was, you know, it was a year round job focused on a couple of weeks of crazy tasting. So it was a little bit almost like doing a vintage. Um, yeah, it was mad completely. It was a bonkers adventure. Great fun. So was that in terms of um, like a administrative organisational kind of role or were you involved with sort of marketing communications as well? A um, bit of all of it. Um, the main crux of it was really as an events organiser. So, but we used to have to try and find a, a building with three floors, um, which could have one floor for the wine, one floor for a restaurant and one floor for tasting. Um, and the proviso for that was that it had transport, people could get to it, trucks could get to it, and that we could get it for no money. So we didn't use to pay rent, which was quite an extraordinary thing to do in London, especially when you were from Australia. Yeah, right. Um, so it's, it's very, it sounds like it's very different to what we think of as wine shows in Australia, in that, you know, for the, for the most part, they are... Um, wineries just submit wines a judging panel taste everything blind and and you know awards them a score and subsequent medals and they might have like a, a trophy lunch but this this is like a, over a, a longer period of time and they, 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 there are a lot more events run in conjunction with that uh, uh, yes and no um so the, the International Wine Challenge, when I was there around the turn of the century, had about nine and a half thousand entries from all over the world. Um, and each entry had four to six bottles um, submitted. So you had, you know, you needed floor space for 45,000 bottles yeah. arranged. Um, so that took a space and organising and logistics and all that sort of stuff. And um, then you needed enough judges to judge that many wines. So that required the floor space for judging. Um, so just like Australia, but you do it in, in panels. Um, so that required a lot of floor space. And then because back then we didn't pay the judges, we had to feed them. Um, so right, okay. we, had a, we had a restaurant as well. So we'd set up a restaurant and have a full running restaurant, or smorgasbordy restaurant, but we, the chef we used to use, um, used to be the chef for the Austrian ambassador, so he was pretty good too. So, um, yeah, so Eric was, you know, this fantastic French chef with good pedigree that could knock out food suitable for wine judging in volume fast. And um, yeah, so it was quite, it was, it was more a logistical exercise than anything else. But then it also had to have rigour and you had all these judges from all over the world in the UK coming to judge. Um, and the, the owner of the competition was Wilmington Publishing, which had International Wine Magazine. And so that was the, the anchor magazine or publication to the competition. And at the same time, we also run, used to run the International Spirits Competition, which was tied to Wine and Spirit magazine. Um, so sadly, both those magazines are now defunct, but the competitions live on. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like that being your first sort of pure wine um, employment, it would have been amazing to be exposed to not just, you know, the, the kind of wines that would be entered in the show, but all of the people who 
are running it and people who are judging um, you know, exhibitors was that it, it must have been yeah a great great opportunity to to taste extensively and 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 also at the same time living in in London you know arguably the most important wine market um, wine city in the world yeah no it was a it was a privilege to do it um, yeah the 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 opportunity to be exposed to wines from everywhere and then be able to be exposed to them with people that actually knew about them or had made them or had been importing them for many years was extraordinary. And so it wasn't just that you were tasting, say, a sherry, you know, we could get in someone that to take to run a little masterclass for us to explain what was going on with those sherries and why, and why the houses were slightly different and what went on, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was, a, it was an awesome opportunity. How long did you end up living in Europe for? Uh, so I spent two years there. Okay. Fairly, fairly, fairly standard amount of time for an Australian in their 20s to Correct. go to London for. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. I think, I mean, at the end of two years, I was, I was pretty spent. You know, it wasn't, uh, didn't do it slowly. It was, um, it was hard work and, and we played hard too. Well, yeah, I, 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 you must have um, taken advantage to some extent of um, being in such a vibrant wine and food city as well and get the opportunity to be exposed to lots of different cuisines as well. And, and did you get the chance to travel much, uh, you know, on, on the continent, as it were? Were you visiting any wine regions, wine producers? Yeah, I did a, did a few trips to France. And, yeah, so and then when I finished my stint, in London before heading back to Australia, I did a little backpacking venture on my own and went uh, went to Champagne and Burgundy and to the Rhone. Um, so that was that was awesome, and to just sort of backpack around there was was great fun, and and to go and visit some producers was pretty awesome too. Yeah, right. Uh, what was it that brought you back to Australia, or what did you do when you when you came home? Um, end of visa was what brought me, brought me back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, I'd been studying um, by correspondence doing wine marketing through Adelaide Uni um, while I was living in London. So I continued doing that and picked up a marketing gig. So that was that, was that the, the Bachelor of Wine Marketing? Uh, yeah, I, I think even then when I started, it was uh, still a diploma. And, um, oh, okay, and, right. And then it converted to a bachelor. So I did that very, very slowly while working um, full time. So I think from from starting point to finishing was the with the was it was eight years, which I think was the maximum you're allowed to take to do it. Holy cow! <laughs> I thought I thought who took me too long to do the uh, the masters for <laughs> eight years. It's about how long it took my mum to do her uh, masters in Italian linguistics. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was it was a long haul, but um, so you yeah, started that whilst you were in London, and then continued it once you were back in Australia. No, I started before, and okay, I, I wasn't the great greatest studier at the start, but as I got going, I got better and better. Um, but yeah, so I started in '96, did a little bit, stopped went to London, started it again. And then when I came back from London in 2001, 
um, I managed to then, in a couple of years, finish the diploma and also finish the bachelor's degree as well. So right, okay. I think I graduated in 2004, but at the same time started doing enology part-time as well because I thought I'm into this and marketing's great, but I want to know how to make wine too. And, and, and with, that, with that in mind, to, to delve deeper um, into the science. Did, did the course include much uh, analogy or viticulture study um, or, or did you just kind of want to do more? You wanted to get a little bit more deeper, a little more hands-on? A little bit. I, the way the course was structured was that you could choose electives and the electives I chose rather than doing tourism and those sorts of things, I chose to do winemaking subjects. Um, so I had to talk my way into being allowed to do that and they let me do that. Um, so it meant that I finished the de- wine marketing degree with the with electives as winemaking, which made it easier for me to start a postgrad in enology without a science degree. Yeah, right. Okay. So I um, sort of had it mapped out. It was a bit of a funny pathway, but it was a workaround for me to be allowed to do a science postgrad without a science undergrad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, speaking about my experience, you know, obviously I studied with the University of Adelaide as well. Um, with the master's program uh, externally, part-time, um, because, again, I, didn't, I neither had a, a background in business um, or, or finance, nor did I have a background in sciences or, you know, agriculture, as it were. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of elective opportunities. There were, I had a lot of required subjects. And so I, I had to do pretty much all the viticulture analogy subjects. I had to do all of the accounting uh, finance type subjects, but, um, but you know, w- w- the few that I did, I, I, I found, you know, as far as electives, I found very interesting, but, um, you, did you say that, um, you were working in marketing at that point as well as you were studying? Yeah. Yeah. So I picked up a, a marketing gig, um, for a Kunawara winery, stayed there for a little bit. And then I started doing some sales roles, um, which was really good experience, actually. So I was doing um, supply-side sales roles to the wine industry, which was a great way of, one, getting out and about and seeing things, but also learning how to sell too. So, um, yeah, that was a great experience. And that led me to setting up my own company at the time, which was the Australian offshoot for French uh, winemaking and wine technology company called Enodev. Um, so yeah, so that sort of led into quite a nice role where I was traveling all around Australia, basically working for myself, um, and but as a representative of this French company. And so that allowed me to keep studying, plus have an income, plus build up a business for, for them and for me. So was that um, quite a lot of consulting, like essentially a wine, a winery, a wine business might come to you and ask for advice about how, how can we improve things? Was, but there, was there also selling physical wine technology equipment? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the company Enodev uh, invented micro oxygenation, or Patrick Ducanou, the winemaker that owns 
Enodev invented microoxygenation in his winery in, in Madaran in France. And then he, he launched the company of Enodev to, to take that to the world. Um, so that meant we had an extraordinary mix of clientele. Um, so one of the main clients was Tony Jordan with, with Mark Hennessy. So my, they, my, they my, were, my old boss. Um. Yes, exactly. But he was pretty forward thinking. And so uh, Ina Dev worked with all the Shandon sites around the world. Oh, um, wow. Okay. So one in helping with technology applications, but also trying to um, have a uniform sensory language um, across the company so that people could talk on the same wavelength, I guess, and be talking about the same things. Um, and also to allow a bit of, I guess, uh, movement between countries and then not have to recalibrate everything tasting-wise. So was that for that the Australian the and New Zealand wineries or was that for all the estates and wines um, all of them. businesses around the world? Oh, all wow. Of them, all of them, including Argentina, I understand. Um, okay. So, yeah, so it was quite a big undertaking to look after, you know, I think it included Wet and Chandon in Champagne as well. So Roman right. Renard, my, my, my colleague, um, used to look after Champagne, Loire and Australia. And so he was certainly doing all those places. And they, and they were doing California as well. I think Argentina, but I, and I think they had a site in Brazil and I presume that was included as well. So, yeah, so it was pretty interesting. So, yeah, we had clients, you know, big and small. So lots of big wineries, but also lots of small ones and lots of customers in Margaret River, um, which I guess was the seed sowing for me of what Margaret River did, the sort of wines that were made and what sort of a beautiful place it was. And um, so I used to come across to Margaret River a lot. In, in a sense, um, in, 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 um, in terms of that micro-oxygenation, Sorry, micro, is it micro oxygenation? Micro oxidation? Well, oxidation would be the oxygenation. Oxi of, would be the start of a, of a fault yeah. producing micro oxygenation. Process. Oxygenation like, is the term. Yes. That I mean, from from my understanding, you know, Bordeaux was where it really came to prominence, and and that influenced a lot of wine businesses, wine regions around the world, particularly those who are working with. Um, Bordeaux varieties like Cabernet or varieties of the uh, you know of that sort of style. Um, it doesn't surprise me that Margaret River would be uh, a region that would you know be really interested in that kind of uh, uh, technology technique. Yeah, and that, and that's exactly right. You know, so Madaran had tannins to tame, and just quite a reductive grape. So that's where it came from. Well, Patrick, Patrick thought it up working in Burgundy, actually, and what they were doing was splash wrecking. So they'd have reductive barrels. And so the more reductive, stinkier the barrels, the more air was required, so the, the greater you would splash it. And he thought, well, this is not very repetitive or not very repeatable and it's not quantifiable. You know, it's gentle splash or vigorous splash. Is, is there a way that we can actually bring the oxygen or the air to the wine. And that's where the whole concept of micro-oxygenation came from, was to quantify a splash wrecking, basically. Right. Um, so, yeah, they did a lot of work in Bordeaux, a lot of work in California. Um, and 
we used to do a lot of work in Margaret River and we certainly did a lot of work in Margaret River in 2006, which was the last wet, cold vintage in Margaret River. And so there was a lot of um, underripe characters in a lot of the cabernets. And so what microoxygenation, one of the things it can do is to help transform green underripe tannins to maybe more sweeter, chocolatey, rounder tannins that don't look green beanie. So that's one of the things it can do, as well as, well as build structure and, 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 and do help integrate oak and all sorts of other things. But one of the things it can do is help with underripe grapes. So that's certainly something that used to happen in Bordeaux, not as much these days, um, and can happen with cooler vintages in places like Margaret River. Yeah, right. Uh, how, how long did you end up doing that for? Uh, so it was about five years I was involved with them. And then after that? Um, so we had a child and I was doing a lot of travel and I'd started doing a bit of media work in Adelaide as well and so I was quite enjoying that. But um, I wanted a bit more security with one income family and a, and a baby and so I thought I needed to go and get a proper job um, so I ended up talking with Derenberg and getting a job there as winemaker and brand ambassador. So that, that was a salaried position, so a bit more security. Right. And um, winemaker obviously working very closely with, with Chester. Correct. Yeah, even so close that my office was next to his. Yeah, right. Must have been... Such a, an amazing stark contrast between those two offices, all the eccentricities you would find in, uh, in Chester's office. <laughs> um, yeah, many, many, many piles of um, unread magazines. Oh, really? All, all kinds of topics, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah he, 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 he's, a, he's a man of boundless you know, imagination and everything was possible, which is one of his great character traits but he he used to not only read wine stuff he'd be reading scientific you know pure science journals and architecture magazines and you know obviously obviously spawning ideas which have um he's been able to turn into reality mm. and and brand ambassador re required you to sort of spend quite a bit of time out in in market it used to mean spending a lot of time lunching james he loves a, he loves a lunch, Chester. He loves a lunch. Mm -mm. I used to spend an extraordinary amount of time eating um, and travelling. Um, so it used to be about three to four months of the year overseas. Um, I used to spend at least a month a year in America and then travelling the rest of the world. And that didn't I didn't even used to used to count domestic travel. I thought that was frivolous. Um, you know, I only used to count days overseas and that was about three months a year. So it was yeah. pretty demanding, um, but great fun, extraordinarily good fun. Um, and so that would have been a different experience um, going from travelling to wine regions around Australia and possibly New Zealand to going out into market, you know, would have give you, given you again um, the experience of talking to um I guess um, 
the um the 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 opinion makers the um what do you call it the gatekeepers to the markets as far as you know wine buyers and wine media and and that kind of thing yeah exactly i mean it was great it was a huge mix of people you'd be dealing with you know with you'd be doing um you know you might be dealing with media in the morning or buyers for supermarkets or um gatekeepers at distributors in America who were always hard to convince to to sell wine because they had so many options and then you might be going to see retailers or restaurateurs and then you might spend the evening doing a, a dinner for, for for customers um yeah so it was a it was brilliantly varied and um yeah great fun great fun and you would have got to know McLaren Vale very well in that sense as well yeah, I mean, I knew McLaren Vale pretty well prior. My family, we had a vineyard on Branson Road, um, which I guess is sort of southern McLaren Vale. It's where Producers is now. Um, uh, and so we had a share vineyard there with a, with a family that lived there and we helped um, plant and manage uh, uh, 10 acres of Shiraz on that property. Um, so, yeah, so I guess I knew that small patch of mclaren vale very well um but got to know a lot more of it with darrenberg because they took fruit from all over so you know it was a three to five thousand ton crush back then so that was a fair whack of mclaren vale too so yeah no we got to got to see fruit from all over which was great and you know and many many different varieties too so it was a, well, that, it was that a was great. that was my next question um working first for, for Enadev and then for Darrenberg you know the exposure to different varieties much must have been fantastic and old vines as well I would imagine yeah so you know with Darrenberg I mean just on the on the winery property they had vineyards planted in 1890 1894 1904 1920 you know etc etc so that was just on the on the block where the winery was um and then they had other other parcels which were pretty old too so yeah to see what old vines do and the character and also certainly from McLaren Vale, which is far from homogenous in soil types, to see, you know, they used to do a fair whack of Grenache there, and Grenache is a really transparent variety for where and how it's grown. And so you could see what characters different soil types brought to the, brought to the wine. And so to see the prettiness, you know, something off sand had prettiness and something with sand on clay had prettiness but with structure. And then Grenache on limestone base was much more tannic and structured and less of the prettiness and more gravelly and ferrous and ferruginous and bloody. And, yeah, it was, was, was a really good learning place to see all those different, because all the winemaking was pretty homogenous. So you you were able to see the sense of place quite clearly. Mm. Did you have uh, any particular affinities with certain varieties? Um, I certainly enjoyed the Grenaches and, and Mavedras a lot. Um, I thought they were fantastic. Um, and the other thing, which is quite a curio for Darenberg, was that they had a few growers with 
some pretty old plantings of Riesling, um, one of whom was the place where we had our Shiraz plot. Um, and to see what old vine reason could do in a warm region like the Claren Vale was quite astounding too. At any point at this at this stage, were you making any wine for yourself? Just sort of doing um, things in your way? No, and but I was thinking about it, and I think at that time people used to ask, and I used to say, "Well, that'd be silly," because at that time things were pretty tough. It was GFC. And Australia had a lot of brand, wine brands and it was pretty tricky to sell wine. Um, and I, I remember telling somebody, no, 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 that'd be silly. Australia doesn't, you know, what is, Australia doesn't need another brand. Australia doesn't need a new, you know, another wine to be sold. It needs to sell what we've got. And um, maybe I should have jumped earlier, but uh, I didn't. I tried to uh, stay within the safety of um, being employed by others. Which, which with, with, with hindsight, was not true at all. Yeah, like, you know, back when I was working at Shandon, it seemed, um, and, and I don't think that was necessarily just a Shandon thing, it was a sort of an industry thing. It was a little bit more frowned upon, um, whereas now I, I feel like winemakers, um, especially if, if you are very well respected and, and you know, um, a solid wine producer wants to employ a, a chief winemaker, with a very strong pedigree, they almost negotiate uh, as part of their package the opportunity to be able to make their wines in the facility, like, you know, make, make some of their own there. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, it, you know, I think there's still some producers who say no. Um, and I also think there's some winemakers that are perfectly happy making wine for others without any business risk on the side. You of know, course. It takes a, bit of, takes a bit of bravery, one, to put yourself out there from, I guess, an artistic point of view, but then there's also the business side. So, and also, I guess you've got to ne negotiate it at the start um, and to say, hey, I'd like to work with you, but I'd like to make X number of tonnes. So I know there's quite a few winemaker friends that have been allowed to make their own wine, but can't make any more than, say, 10 tonnes worth. So sure. They, I think I think the, 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 um, the employer wants to, keep keep the artistic dream small and manageable as such um but uh yeah i think you're right i think certainly more recently that the better winemakers are able to negotiate that as part of their deal um mm -hmm. and and if the winery tends to be reasonably set in its ways then it doesn't want to allow artistic flair to come through in its product as such um that, that that might be a safer bet to let the winemaker play on the side with their own gear yeah okay so you were at uh, Darenberg for a while yeah so i was there for three and a, three and a bit years yeah uh and from there um from there i then went and did some work i did a couple of vintages at rosemount um and did a bit of consulting in between and then I got a gig with Puno Ricard, um, which was purely ambassadorial um, with lots of travel. But sadly, at the time, they had a marketing director who wanted to pull all the staff from Adelaide to Sydney. And um, yeah, the offer on the table was basically the same dollars as I was getting in Adelaide to live in Sydney. And um, that was a tricky 
a tricky thing to do. Yeah, I can imagine it'd be almost twice as expensive to live in Sydney as Adelaide. Yeah, yeah. So sadly, that didn't that didn't last. But um, that was a pretty interesting experience too, and um, completed a small personal circle because the Shiraz Vineyard we had in McLaren Vale um, was contracted to go to Orlando or what turned into Pernod Ricard winemakers. Um, so it was a little bit of a, a personal circle there to be completed, to go from family grape growers providing fruit to, um, to trotting around the world, talking about the wines made from maybe not necessarily that vineyard anymore, but um, yeah, it was a nice little, I guess, a completion of a circle for me. And at what point did you make the, the transition over to Margaret River? Um, we moved over, I moved over in late 2015 um, to take up, I was recruited um, to run the, the export business for a medium-sized winery over in, over in Margaret River. Um, so they, they asked me to come and work for them and said, yeah, we'll move your family across and we've got this great gig and it'll be wonderful. Um, and it was for a little while. But sadly, after only being here for a bit over a year, um, the owners of the business, who none of whom were wine people, and um, I think for them it was maybe a bit of a vanity project, um, uh, made a few of us redundant or made a few of our roles redundant. And so, um, so yeah, I was stuck in Margaret River just having freshly moved my family over um, without a job for which I'd moved for. So that was a bit of a tricky time. Uh, and that's sort of when you decided to throw your hat in the ring and start your own project. Yeah, exactly. Well, I thought, well, my family's here. We've rented our house in McLaren Vale out and we've got a rental here and we're living in Gracetown, one of the great surfing meccas of the world. And it was pretty nice. And I thought, well, we're here. Why don't we give this a crack and let's jump in. So I rang a few friends and we, we managed to secure some fruit and found somewhere to make it. And then I picked up a vintage gig um, back on the tools at Bass Felix as a seller hand and, and we were underway. So yeah, through, um, through a bit of a painful work saga, um, Wines of Merit was born. Mm. And, um, and you wanted to make something and make, make uh, your project a, something a little bit different to what people tend to expect from Margaret River and profile varieties, which were a little bit underappreciated. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's right. You know, we wanted to concentrate on Shannon and Cabernet Franc, which had old vine material in Margaret River, but were, I felt a bit unloved. Um, you know, I'd seen the wines that could be made in my Enadev travels to Margaret River. And I thought, and the guy I was traveling with, Roman was based in Tour in Loire. And so he, he and I both really enjoyed the Cabernet Francs and the Shinnons we saw. And so when the opportunity came to start the business and we were looking for fruit, they were the things I focused on. And then I wanted to make them using some of the techniques that I'd seen in France and in Europe and just pull back on the winemaking a bit and let the wines flow a bit more and not muck around with them as much as, as I possibly could. 
But back when you were working for InnerDev, did you have the opportunity to go over to the Loire Valley and and see Shannon and Cabernet Franc in, in the ground and visit some producers' taste around there? Correct, yeah. And that was, that is exactly what I did and that's exactly what reeled me in and sort of, I guess, cemented half of the idea that if I was going to do something in Margaret River, they were the things that I wanted to play with and make. Um, yeah, so going to visit Francois Chidane in, uh, in, in the Loire and, and seeing that crossing a river and the, the difference it made between the two communes in Loire was extraordinary. And then staying, staying in accommodation which was dug into the side of a limestone hill, Pont um, de Trigli, Trigli, excuse my French, but the, you know, the home of a caveman. So the houses were all normal on, on the front and then caves at the back, it was quite amazing. And so seeing this soil and the, the wineries in Bourgoya and Domaine d'Ouche was one that we went and spent a bit of time looking at and seeing that what what could be made out of this extraordinary terroir and with these great grape varieties which were even in France a little bit unloved um, and they deserve greater appreciation. I love I love the fact both of the of the wines are generally quite medium, that they're not light bodied, they're not full bodied, they're they're quite in the middle. Um, you know, that 12, 12.5%, 13% sort of alcohol level and um, and and lovely for drinking with food and wines of texture and wines of longevity and just lovely length of flavour and mouthfeel. So that, that yeah, so I really quite fell in love with them and and so that's what we had in mind when we thought, right, we're going to do this for ourselves. How are we going to do it? With what are we going to do? And um, so that's what we did. Was it challenging um, getting access to fruit sources? Um, I was really lucky that the that my the, the friends I had knew knew where some things were, and um, yeah, I, a little bit of luck and a little bit of good management. Um, and the fact that we just wanted to get a little bit. So we're talking, you know, under under three tonne lots. And so we're able to access, you know, these little bits and pieces of single vineyard Shannon and single vineyard Frog. So I was pretty happy as a starting point with those. Mm. And so far, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're only about four vintages in, but you've already started to get a, a, a pretty... Um, decent following and um quite a bit of attention for for these wines i think um probably because both um in terms of uh, probably more sommeliers than retailers but also certain wine media are probably excited to be able to talk about something a bit different from margaret river and talk about these varieties that they personally love but don't get uh, enough attention with the end consumers yeah, I think that I, I think that's exactly right. And you know, we, I think we were lucky, you know, a bit lucky in a way that the timing was pretty good for you know a bit of a Shannon and a Franc revival in Australia. It's certainly trickier. It's harder to access 
uh, fruit sources now for those for those two varieties in Margaret River. So that's certainly been the case. Um, yeah, and I think oh, look, you know, I hope I'm a good winemaker, and I hope I make good wine, and I try and make wine that, first of all, that that we would like to drink, um, and hopefully that means other people will like it too. Um, I know that's a bit simplistic and a bit sort of, you know, dreaming, dreaming for the stars, but, you know, we, we, we don't want to make wines that we wouldn't drink ourselves. And I, th I think a bit of that was lucky. And, yeah, we've had some really nice support from media and some really nice support from trade in restaurants particularly, but also some pretty smart um, retailers as well. Mm. Well, yeah, for, for, for what it's worth, um, uh, until my, uh, my own job was made redundant, um, the, sort of early on in this COVID-19 situation, I certainly did appreciate working with your wines for the very short amount of time and, and spending some time with you here in the Melbourne wine trade. It was really fantastic to, um, to be able to get, get yourself and, and the, your wines in front of, um, in front of people and, and, you know, I, I think it's fantastic and obviously, you know, it'd be great for when, when things, when we get more of a COVID normal situation, that's um, the, the, the wine's getting more in, in people's glasses at the end of the day. Yeah, oh, look, I find it, you know, I'm, I'm devastated that Victoria's um, back under, or Melbourne is back under lockdown again. It's, it, you know, quite often Western Australians say that, you know, they feel like they're a separate country and they want to want to want to control their own destiny and secede. Um, but certainly at the moment it feels like a different world being over here because we're almost back to normal. Twenty thousand people at football and yeah, you know, restaurants are back to normal and all of that sort of stuff. And just, so you're um, so back to normal, you're having streakers at footy games. Yeah, very well. there's there's nothing like a tradie with a few beers under his belt or no belt um, to get them uh, to get their kid off and add onto the add onto the oval. Pretty expensive yeah. night in 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 Perth. <laughs> eight thousand yeah. dollar fine. Yeah, it's uh, yes, yeah, very much so. It's um, have to get a job FIFO. Um, but yeah, it, look, it's bonkers over here. You know, Margaret River's busier now than it was this time last year because people from Perth can't go to Bali and can't go overseas. So everyone's travelling internally. And so all the tourist spots like Broome and the Kimberley and Kununurra and Margaret River and Albany and all those places, Pemberton, are very, very, very busy. Yeah, and like you know, they probably would be even more busy um, in spite of the season. You know, in summer, of course, I think that's probably when a lot of people are certainly heading south from Perth. But uh, even even now, I think you know because there's very limited options about where people can go. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so I think you know people are exploring their backyard. But um, yeah, look, I, the, the thing that I really miss is being able to, well, one, I do quite like restaurants and, and eating out. And so I very much miss being able to visit Melbourne and, and Sydney and, and Adelaide too, where I'm originally from, um, and going to see customers and see what's going on and being given wines that they think are, are exciting and and where they 
we're, we're my customers like to be drinking and what they find exciting and stimulating and um, invigorating from their point of view too. So I quite miss those experiences because that helps us think about what we'll make next and how we'll make it. And, and you know, we, what we people are complete. liking, what people might not be liking in the wines, what they reference. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. And just seeing those subtle changes out there and, and, and trying new stuff, you know, I tried a Ferrera Gricketa Tufu recently and it just blew my mind. And, it blew my mind so much that I've started asking around and I, I haven't found any in WA yet. I know there's some in Langhorne Creek, um, but I'd love to be able to make one. I just need a volcano too. So maybe if there's some down in Mount Gambia, that might be an option. Well, look, that's something that I'm looking at. You know, the, uh, there's actually, hopefully for me next year, I'm going to be working with the vineyard uh, in um, sort of the, the extremities of Macedon um, on the edge of a, a dormant volcano. And um, I, I want to go and look at the site and see if there is potential to plant some of these um, Italian varieties that originate from um, volcanic influenced regions with, with a bit of, you know, cooler climate and, you know, places like Etna and, and, um, and, you know, around Vesuvio and stuff like that. So yeah, Gre Greco would definitely be a variety. I'd also love to see Norella muscalese planted in those kinds of places. Yeah. I look James, I, I, you know, the, the, the potential of Australia to be making wine from grapes that are far better suited to one, the soils that we may have in, in certain parts of certain regions, but also our, our climate is we've only just scratched the surface. And, you know, Vermentino, you know, I, I love making Vermentino, but the total tonnage of Vermentino in Margaret River until last year, I think it was only 20 tonnes. You know, so it's a tiny amount. And what great potential. How much, I mean, in my point of view, how much better would it be if everyone was drinking Margaret River Vermentino than SSB? You know, it, it's... It, or dare I say it, even Chardonnay. Oh! <laughs> Controversial. Margaret, Margaret River Chardonnay is world-class and something you can happily take to a table in London or New York and put it down and say, this is great wine in anyone's language. Um, 99% of the SSB should be blown up, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> but there's such good potential with these other varieties. And, mm. you know, to explore exactly what you were saying with Nero Muscalese, with more Nero Davila, um, better Sangiovese clones, Nebbiolo clones, um, Greco de Tufi, you know, there's all this potential. And then we haven't even hit some of the Greek varieties and some of the Turkish varieties. And, you know, we haven't even started. And what, what to me, that is mind-blowingly exciting that mm. there's all this potential still to come. Well, hopefully, um, you know, I'm not sure if you have entered them um, yet, but I'd love to see your wines at the Alternative Varieties Wine Show because... Uh, I would certainly think that those wines would do well, and I, I think they would certainly um, meet the, the, the 
requirements to be eligible. Um, I'm certainly going to be entering some more of my wines this year, but um, yeah, it is obviously a shame that um, we weren't able to continue working together for now. Um, and, uh, and obviously we, we're not able to, to catch up because um, I was looking forward to seeing you again, but hopefully it won't be too long till you're back over in Melbourne or I'm over in WA. Yeah, no, look, hey, you're always welcome here. And yeah, I can't wait for, you know, the borders to open up and things to hopefully get back to some semblance of normality. Um, so I'm not can... too unhappy about not being able to go overseas because um, there's a lot of Australia that I still haven't explored and would like to go to, especially with uh, now two young kids. I want them to see a bit more of Australia. Yeah, I mean, Australia, you know, Australia's got amazing diversity. You know, you can, I'm, I'm quite, I'm still quite ashamed to say that um, I can guide you around Beijing or Shanghai, but I've never been to Tasmania. So, you know, I've got plenty of things I want to tick off in Australia too. So I've got some friends in Tasmania making some pretty smart wine and I'd love to go and visit them and, and see what they're up to um, firsthand. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of Australia left to explore, so um, I'm I'm not too upset either. Now's the time. Well, um, Nick, thank you so much for making some time. Unfortunately, uh, we have to cut it there because uh, I'm currently holding my one month old baby, and I need to go and help um, with uh, with <laughs> with the three year old as well. But uh, do you want to let people know um, where they can find out more information about wines of merit? Uh, and follow you on social media as well? Yeah, so, I mean, winesofmerit.com.au is, uh, is our website, and through that there's links to Instagram, which I'm reasonably busy with. Um, we've also got a Facebook page, which I guess I feed through with Insta. I'm not the greatest Facebook fan, I'm sorry. Um, so that gets the Insta feeds, and then I also have a personal Twitter account for for I guess more sort of wine media communications. Um, so they, they can all be found, all those links can be found through the website, um, winesofmerit.com.au. Um, but yeah, James, thank you very much for having me on. It is such a pleasure to speak to you. And I do wish that we had more of an opportunity to work together for longer, but I do look forward to um, catching up with you next time. Either I'm in Melbourne or you're over here in WA. Always lots of good uh, conversation to be had. Thank you very much, James. All right, Nick. Thanks again. And as always, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining me on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and also the man behind Vino Intrepido, a fairly new wine project, wine brand that I started myself, um, pretty much in the 2017 vintage. Uh, I have finally got around to setting up a website for that. That's at vinointrepido.com. And you can follow Vino Intrepido on social media, on Instagram, uh, and Facebook at Vino Intrepido. Um, you can still find my blog at intrepidwino.com. Lots of different content there. Um, you can find all the episodes of the podcast there, but also um, various tasting videos uh, and also my own chronicle of my wine trip around the world. Uh, and you can follow Intrepid Wino on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's at Intrepid Wino. As far as the podcast, there's lots of different platforms and apps you could uh, use to listen. Um, please you know, subscribe if you can. Uh, that way you'll find out about new episodes as soon as they become available. 
Uh, and if it uh, gives you the uh, opportunity, please leave me a rating and review. Five stars would be awesome. Um, please mention, uh, if you can, um, particular episodes you enjoyed, what you like about the podcast, what you get out of it. Uh, that way, um, it really helps get the podcast out to a broader audience. And why not use um, good old-fashioned word of mouth? Uh, well, maybe not in person. Um, please share it on, uh, on social media. Uh, and you can follow The Vincast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, like I said, lots more episodes coming up. Uh, I've already recorded several uh, and I'm lining up lots more. So um, I'm excited to bring you more stories. But uh, until next time, bye. Bye.